Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Our guest on today's show is Professor Stefan Alish Taylor, who I suppose would best be described as a serial entrepreneur, though that doesn't really cut it when it comes down to it, because Stefan has been a policeman, an advertising agency founder, a film producer, a stockbroker, the director of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's charities, an art philanthropist, and actually a thoroughly lovely man, as I hope you'll hear in this. We recorded this episode in the dining room at Alfred Dunhill's on a fairly busy Friday afternoon, so there's a bit of room noise and laughter and the clinking of plates and things in the background, which I hope doesn't bother you because it certainly didn't distract us from touching on a huge range of topics, from the professor's Harlem Globetrotter-like approach to rugby to the piranhas he used to keep by his desk and almost everything in between. I think my mother actually gets a mention in this one, which she'll be thrilled about. Anyway, for the rest of you, enjoy. But before we start this episode, I'd love to tell you very briefly about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get four issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door across the year, full of all those invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurship, style and culture that you'd hope for. As well as, of course, some exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, if you're a podcast listener, which you obviously are, you now get 20% off your annual Clubhouse membership, meaning you get the full Gentleman's Journal experience in full colour for just £56 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. To get that, just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Stefan, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Good afternoon. You are uh, a serial entrepreneur, according to the press releases I read about you, and a philanthropist, a kind of investor. You're almost everything. You were a policeman at one point. You founded an advertising agency. You're a film producer. What do you say to people when they say, hi, what do you do? I usually try and avoid the answer because I can't... Unless I can think of something very pithy and amusing... Okay. I don't come up with anything very interesting. So I usually say I'm a trainee philanthropist. Okay. Which is a conversation point. Right. What's usually. the next question? I mean, it may that? not be with you, but usually it's a conversation point. No, it is. Point. I think it is. So they say, what's, what's a trainee philanthropist? Well, it's someone that tries to earn money so they can, on top of buying very nice things with it, do other things with it that make them feel good for buying all the material stuff that they bought. Okay. Maybe that's not a dictionary definition. No, that's quite compelling. <laughs> what material stuff are you trying to offset with well, your philanthropy? I am six foot ten. Yes. Clothes. Very okay. hard to buy things from M&S. That's a good point. So I have to have things made. So they're expensive. Yeah. And I've been six foot ten since I was 18. Wow. And I'm a big fan of Star Trek. Okay. But <laughs> those trousers... Above the ankles. Yeah. They're only appropriate at Star Trek parties. Fine. And not walking down the street. They're quite fashionable now. You see, Are they now? Well, when I say fashionable, I mean that in inverted commas. There's a lot of men wearing them. Really? A kind of Italian look, I think you'd call it. A lot of ankle. No, I'm with you. And Italians are probably the one group of people who don't need to wear trousers that are too short for them. No. As a Teutonic bloke who is a little taller. Okay, fine. Observe. you're, You're German. Austrian? Yes. Part Austrian. Part I'm, I'm Austrian-Scottish. Okay, good combo. That's nice. That's a very strong North European combo. Some would say a bit aggressive. Okay, fine. Were you a sportsman at school? 
You look like a lock forward. Do you know, I was a very enthusiastic sportsman. Right. But I was useless. Okay. I did... I captained a rugby side at school. And it was uh, the fourth 15. Right. And I think it was created especially for me because <laughs> I was a very entertaining rugby player. Entertaining? Well, I was entertaining because in the fourth 15... We had all the boys that were really good athletes and really good soccer players, mm -hmm. but they kind of sucked at rugby. Okay. So we would devise ways of scoring that were a bit unorthodox, but within the rules. Trick moves. Yes, lots of trick moves. Wow. And we were very entertaining to such a degree that Headmaster actually suggested that no one came to watch our matches because they came to watch our matches and not the senior first team matches <laughs> okay. because they were very professional and sensible. Right. And we were winning. But probably not in a way that was particularly, you know, rugby glamorous. No, okay, fine. You, you know? were the Harlem Globetrotters. I like that, yeah. fifteen, yeah, Yorkshire rugby. I'm going to go with that. Okay, good. Yeah, if, yeah. even if it just gets you off the subject. <laughs> okay, good. So after that, you, yeah. uh, you left school and you didn't go to university. What did you do after leaving school? I did what everyone not bright enough to go to university did in those days. I went to the city. Okay, I wanted dead air then. I got right. dead air and I you wanted did. it. I thought you were going to say more. <laughs> no. You'd hope the city was attracting our brightest and best minds. I've got nothing for you there except okay. <laughs> 2008. That's all I've got for well, you. Well, 1987 was when you came in. That was a bad enough time. Oh, it wasn't that terrible. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, I, I did get A-levels, but they weren't great. I wanted to go to university, but I didn't feel, and for that you should read, nobody who knew me felt it would be a good use of my time. Okay. So I did sit the stock exchange exams. Yes. And I was, in fact, the youngest registered representative of the International Stock Exchange, as it was known. So I was the youngest qualified stockbroker for, it must have been almost three weeks. And then someone else came Yeah, in. it was a girl. And really? she, she beat me. So yeah. there was I think time. her birthday was in April and mine was in May. How old were you then? I was, I must have been 18. 18. Okay, so that's young. 18, 19. I can't remember which. Were 18, you, were 19. Were you good at that age? I, do you know what? I was put on the dealing desk, and the oh. dealing desk was a lot of chat okay. and a lot of humour. Right. So, you know, we would knock on a table, hold the phone next to it and say, this is opportunity knocking. And we would, you think about it, it was the mm. middle of, you know, the late 1980s. Mm. You know, we had slick back hair, we had braces, yeah. but I didn't do it in London. I was a stockbroker in Yorkshire. Oh, okay. But because of the Big Bang and the computer systems and Market Eye and SEAC, you could trade from anywhere. And it was genuinely good fun. fun. And there was a lot of theatre and there was a lot of amusement. But ultimately, it was other people's money and it was quite serious stuff. But it doesn't mean to say that you couldn't have a laugh. And, right. and indeed, I did. Okay, good. Have you seen the film? That, I mean, I don't know how to ask this question, but have you seen the film The Wolf of Wall Street? Because on the reason I ask is it's a timing point. Because Jordan Belfort starts his job as a broker on Wall Street on the day of the 19, of Black Friday, I guess it's called, 1987. And that's about the same time you were. No, it was Black Monday. Black Monday. Black yeah. Friday Black Friday is, is something a, um, else. Yes. That's your fun day, it's when we buy all the expensive yeah. kit okay, cheaper. fine. Or all the cheap kit cheaper, <laughs> I don't know, it depends on your view. <laughs> so, so was it that kind of atmosphere? No, we was weren't it? criminals. No, no, but you I mean, know, I I mean the kind of... We need to calm down a little bit on that. Let's definitely clarify that you weren't yes. criminals. But that kind of... There's a sense of bravado, yes. the kind of two-toned shirts, yes. red braces. No, it was fashion offensive, for okay. sure. And it was a lot of money that was moving around. Right. And people had a very odd approach to what value was. Mm -hmm. And, of course, within 
12 months or so, maybe a bit longer of me qualifying into this seemingly hedonistic world, I was listening to songs by Bruce Hornsby and the Range saying the way it is, and Phil Collins was singing Another Day in Paradise, and it was Mm. basically songs that were hitting the top 10 because they were all about very wealthy people standing over and taking, you know, the Michael, because I've been Mm. told not to swear, um, out of not by me, I didn't. out of uh, well, it was people taking the piss out of those yeah. people who were less yeah, yeah, fortunate yeah. themselves. Thanks for letting me out of that hole. I was okay, struggling, <laughs> struggling to dig myself out of that. Really, so it was weird because obviously, you know, you're a stockbroker, you buy into something, you're told it's fantastic. It, it, you know, I didn't do it for very long, but this wave of guilt mm. about being Thatcher's children came in really quickly and really early in the early 1990s as interest rates shot up because of our resignation from the exchange rate mechanism, mm-hmm. um, mortgages went into high teens, mm-hmm. and we had about three and a half million, four million people in negative equity yeah. after a decade of being told that you are, in fact, a second-class citizen if you don't buy your own home. So it was a weird juxtaposition to be a young adult, let alone yeah. a teenager, which I still was, even though I was working. Yeah. I was still 18, 19, so it was very confusing messaging. Did you feel guilty personally? No, not at all. No, I didn't feel guilty because as soon as I understood, in my view, what was going on, I resigned as a stockbroker. Mm. Not through disgust or anything. I actually thought that stockbroking involved counting other people's money. And I quite like the idea of making my own uh, in some level, but I didn't want to do it yet. So, you know, that was when I became a policeman okay. and also you know, started to think about what I could do career-wise where I wasn't necessarily a slave to money, yeah. you know, as we are all idealistic at that age, I hope. And I was trying to find my feet and right. you know, that seemed like a good way to do it. And what do you remember from being a policeman? What did that teach you? Fun. No, it, it was fun and I, I like that's my immediate knee-jerk reaction yeah. on it. However, what I would say is that genuinely, at the risk of sounding pious, you never get a better insight into society or our society by taking a look at those people that yeah. the police invariably have to deal with on a day-to-day basis as opposed to those who are, you know, white-collar criminals or those who are engaged in other things. Mm-hmm. So as, a, as a, someone on the, on the front line as a serving police officer in those days... I had a real eye-opener as the cold reality of the difference between the haves and the have-nots yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And I, you know, I wasn't in London, I was in a, in a different county. So as a result, you know, the divide was quite severe. And it was shocking. It was shocking. Yeah. Uh, and I think that had a real imprint on me in terms of really the ruthlessness of what happens when you are trapped in poverty mm-hmm. versus those that have an opportunity to, to get out of it. Yeah. So it was a cold lesson. 30 years on from that. Yeah. 30 years? I mean, it's been 30 years since then. calculator out 30 years. What's going on? You said early 90s. Yeah, I know. Was it really 30 years? Well, I, I was born in 1990 and I would be 30 in a couple of months. So that was what I was going on. Oh, I was just starting to like you as well. Isn't that right? No, my stress level's up now, seriously. Okay, my question is though... That makes me old. Well... Or does it make me a young policeman? I think it makes you a very I'm going to go policeman. with a young policeman. Yeah, yeah, it makes you a prodigal, not prodigal, prodigious. That's the one that's different. I'll go with that. I Fine. don't know what either mean, but I'll no, go with it. Neither do I, clearly. So is it worse now, as far as the have and have-nots go, than it was 30 years ago? Well, first of all, I'm not a policeman now, and I haven't been for 30 years, yeah. so I can't answer that with the kind of level of detail that I could in those days. Yeah. Um, I profoundly believe that the country has got 
a serious problem relating to what I've called, and I'm sure others call it, opportunity poverty. Mm -hmm. So you can be disadvantaged through the postcode you live in, the town you live in, the city you live in, because you're not part of a network and it's difficult to get into that network to advance your career or to make the most of of what you've got. Mm. In some respects, it's a meritocracy because, of course, universities have opened up a lot more because polytechnics and universities all became universities, and I think that helped. But there is no denying it that opportunity poverty is a serious problem in the country at the moment. We talk about the North-South divide. That's all part and parcel of it. We talk about the Northern powerhouse, and God, do we talk about it. I don't know what it means. I don't know who's done anything in relation to it, but I know everyone likes to talk about it. You know, we know that even internet connectivity in certain parts of the country is so dire that I think we're number... 48 on the list of, of internet connectivity. Wow. And I'm pretty sure the Gambia is number 38. Okay. So, you know, for us, there's a lot wrong that yeah. doesn't allow people the kind of social mobility they should have, being yeah. part of the fifth largest economy on the planet. Well, there's a lot to talk about there, and, and I don't want to get political just yet. So I'm going to say, tell me about the first business you set up, which is your advertising agency. I did. Yeah. I set it up. Most people talk about these things, uh, and they don't quite mean it. I set it up in a broom cupboard. Okay. Uh, in an accountant's office in Leeds. It was a broom cupboard. I shared my office with brooms. True. (laughs) And I had a desk and I had a computer and I had a landline phone and I had the very first mobile telephone, probably in Yorkshire, that I'd bought on a credit card I couldn't afford, by the way, from London. And I was very proud of this fantastic phone. I thought it would change my life, and indeed it did. It nearly bankrupted me because they were very expensive in those days. And secondly, and rather humorously for everyone but me, the mobile telephone network didn't get to Yorkshire until a year after I bought that phone, by, wow. which, phone this, by which time, rather, the same phone was available from Currys for a third of the price that I paid for it. So you had a completely useless, expensive box you'd bought? Yes, but wow. it was flash. It looked good. I mean, it was. So what did you do? I pretended. You you just pretended you were on the phone? I did. Near girls? Well, not overly, just anyone that was prepared to take any notice of me. Okay. I did pretend a lot. How big are we talking? It was, I can't remember what brand it was. I probably didn't Motorola, I don't know. No, it wasn't a Motorola. It was a big old bit of kit. I think it was an NEC. Right, and it it had had an aerial you'd pull out? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a handheld. It wasn't the one that you carry around like a mini suitcase. No, it wasn't anything that bad. Not a car phone. But I had that, yeah. So I was reading Campaign magazine. Yeah. And I read that Marabou, who owned Dime Bar, mm-hmm. had put their contract up okay. for advertising, I think. Remember, we are going back, as you yeah, rightly no, pointed out, fine. 72 years. <laughs> and uh, I was reading it in a wine bar, because there were no coffee shops, but I was reading it in a wine bar in Leeds, and I thought, oh, that looks good, because, you know, I'm so experienced. So I immediately sent a fax to them to say that I want to pitch and right. I've got a very, very famous person prepared to join me and do television adverts. How old them. are you at this point? 19 and a half. Wow. I might, so have, been, that's, I might have been 20. I might okay. be 20. Either way, it's bold. Yeah. Well, there's another name for it, but yeah. I'll go with bold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's bold if it works. Yeah. It's called something else if it doesn't. <laughs> okay. um, so they said, who have you got? And I said, I've got Harry Enfield. Did you uh, have, had, had you ever met No, I never spoke to him, no. But I thought of someone who was, at the time, so popular and so unlikely to do a television <laughs> advert because he was loads of money and, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, um, Ben Elton and anti-money and yeah. anti-Thatcher and anti-everything. 
And of course, he was cult, and he was fantastic, and he'd done Stavros. Yeah. Um, I don't think you could get away with that now, but he did Stavros, <laughs> and then he did loads of money. And of course, he was on, I think, I can't remember the name of the show. But he was on a Saturday night show mm. that everybody used to watch. So I just said him because I thought he was brilliant. And they said, oh, that's amazing. You know, can you, you know, can you put something together? And I said, yes, of course. And um, I was with a friend of mine who was younger than me. I think he was 18, and it was his father's office. Okay. This is um, the broom cupboard. Yeah, it's a fellow called Charlie Kay. Right. And I was in his father, brilliant man, Michael Kay's office, and I was in the broom cupboard and as i've said and i said to charlie <laughs> something along the lines of we're going to get the dime bar gig and he said what do you mean we and i said right will you now work for me <laughs> um and he said oh that's good i've never had a job before because he was like 17 and a half or something and i said yeah this, we've got to write these adverts and we've got to get hold of harry enfield and we've got to say that basically he um you know he should do this and charlie went right he asked me something about whether or not I was or wasn't on drugs or something. Right, I don't okay. remember, but I wasn't. Fine. I couldn't afford them. <laughs> and um, we went out and we bought some dime bars. And I bit one. Uh. And it nearly took my tooth out. Because, I don't know if you know this about dime bars, but they're crunchy on the inside yes. and they're smooth on the outside. Right. <laughs> and no, they're not still paying me. This was 30 years ago, yeah. but I just had to get they it in They are delicious, though. Yeah, they are delicious. That. Well, it's funny they've, you should say that. Because, changed. Well, I took a bite of one, and it nearly took my tooth out. Okay. And I yelled <laughs> some profanity about it. Mm. And I said to Charlie, do you like these damn things? Mm. And Charlie looked at me in a very indignant way, and he said, yes, I do, actually. And I said, that's it, that's the first ad. That's it, that's it. So um, This is a, a Gonzo was, style of advertising. Well, I was confident enough at that point to reach out to Harry Enfield's agent and to say that I was um, the ad agent for Dime Bar, which wasn't true, wow. and that I wanted to hire him to front a series of television adverts, which was a big deal in those days because we didn't have that many channels and a yeah. TV advert was people actually watched them as opposed to now being able to hit a button and ignore them. Yeah. They were important in those days. And presumably there was a lot of money for... Well, that was an interesting question. So um, the agent, whose name I do not recall, and hopefully they've retired now so they can't recall this to, <laughs> to call it a completely untrue fact, but I said something like, you know, I'd really like Harry Enfield to star in these TV adverts. And he said, there's no way he'll do it. And I said, it's for a lot of money. And he said, well, how much is a lot? And I said, listen, it's a lot of money, a lot of money. And he said, is it a lot of money? And I said, yeah, it's a lot of money. And he said, OK, I'll do it. <laughs> and So did you have any idea how much a lot of money No, not a clue. Be? No, I mean, I was 19. I thought a lot of money How was... old do you think he thought you were? Oh, that was the other thing. I never met anyone. I did everything on the phone. Right. Did no you have fake... a deeper voice? Did I then? No, yeah. not overly. No. I think no. I think you could be as a stockbroker or ad agent in those days. You could be like fourteen, and people would reasonably allow you to get on with it. Jesus. So probably not fourteen. There might okay. have been. There might have been labour laws. Yeah, I don't know. We didn't really do make labour laws in those days. But no, what I can say is that they're on the internet right now, and they did, of course, Harry and his team, and we all worked together. And, and again, I'm taking too much credit, but I want it. We did, you know, coin the phrase, oi nutter. Yeah. Which is a proud moment for a northern public schoolboy like me. Fine. To use the words oi and nutter together in a way that's cool, that went around every single playground. Yes. In the country. Yes. I was like, oh my, I, I just thought it was brilliant. Was this a big thing? I mean, I don't... Oi nutter. I wasn't born. Huge. Anyone listening to this now... Martin. 
is given a yes. Anyone, anyone who know, anyone who's like of a certain age, right? When they hear Oi Nata, okay, you're welcome. Wow. And I don't think anyone knows that I was actually part of that. And you wrote that. You wrote the. I, I'm, I'm not allowed to say whether I did or I didn't write those. Right. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> words. I can't comment because I still think we're bound by a comfy. Oh, really? But I can take credit. Is... I, no, I can take credit for it because I've actually kept the newspaper article where I'm the front page. Wow! So I, there was a front page article about me landing the contract right. because I was twelve. I um, was yes. not twelve. You get the point. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I have a picture of it. I have amazing hair. That's all I know about that. And I was wearing a Turnbull and Asser shirt and tie. So wow. clearly, at nineteen, I was going places. You really were. I was, I was impressed. I mean, I mention it obviously because Gentleman's Journal. You care about this stuff. Yeah, we know. Well, yeah, we do. I've never mentioned that. That is actually a. It's an exclusive. Fine. No one knows I was wearing a Turnbull and Asser shirt and tie oh for that photo shoot in 1989. For 30 years, there's been a question mark hanging over that picture. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's black and white, so you'd never know that it was no. Turnbull and Asser because most of them look like pyjama tops. Yeah, they do. Very fashionable. Not the one I'm wearing now, though, I hasten to add. No, that's very smart. Thank you. Um, so what, what did that teach you? To me, the lesson there is outright confidence and bluster. Taught me any idiot can be an ad agent. That's probably what it taught me. Yeah, OK. Um... <laughs> No, I, I, what did it teach me? It's the same as most things. It, success teaches you nothing. And again, it's, it's terribly cliched, and I do get hauled up for it, but the trouble is the cliches are the truisms. It taught me nothing. You know, I went out to create a television advert and a television campaign that ran for years with one of the most high-profile mm. comedians in the UK at the time with a big company, and I did it. And if you do that as a teenager, you are... I like to think I was fun and I like to think I was grounded, but mm. I'm fairly sure I was an obnoxious little git the minute that I'd achieved it, the way that most teenagers that achieve anything of any merit become. Did you suddenly have a lot of money? I wouldn't say a lot of money. But more money than you had. Yes, I wasn't, I wasn't skint. Did you buy a car? I did. To go with your mobile phone? I did. What was the car? I bought a Jaguar Sovereign. Okay. I, I don't know what that is. A Jaguar Sovereign? Do you know what? I'm coming off you in a large way with I this. Don't, I, don't I know, know what it Jaguars, is, but Seriously, I don't know, you don't what, know what a Jaguar is. Sovereign is. It's, has it got another name? No, no, it's called a Jaguar Sovereign. Yeah, it's convertible. No, no it's, it's not, not convertible. convertible. That's what I'm no, saying. No, no, no. It was actually, I think the Prime Minister had one at the time. Right. They're a four-door Jag. Oh, okay, so quite one of the, not like a racing car. No, no, I wouldn't do that. More no, I'm very, I'm tall, as we've yeah. commented on, So, yeah, yeah, yeah. or I have. Yes. So I needed a car that was size appropriate. Okay, Otherwise, fine. I look like an anaconda getting out of a tin of spaghetti. It's not good. Okay, good. <laughs> you're imaging, you're you think it? about that for well, a minute. Exactly, Just think yeah. about that. Is, that. is that your own? That, 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 that quote, yeah. yeah. I know, it's, quite, it's quite funny because I, I bought one of the, the country's first Audi R8s. Yes. And I got out of it and <laughs> got out of it opposite a pub in Fulham and I literally got a round of applause. Wow. And I, no, I sold the car that afternoon. I've never been so embarrassed in my life. I yeah. think if you get out of a car, you get a round of applause for it. There's something wrong. Unless you are, of course, you know, famous. Famous. Yeah. So I get the feeling people are definitely laughing at me and not with me. So that car was toast. Okay. Pity it was a great car. <laughs> That's a shame. So then what happened after that? What was your next move? So um, I thought that there wasn't anywhere for me to go that would be as exciting as that mm -hmm. which we just achieved. So I didn't continue in advertising. I thought that I'd done it. And I came to London. Mm -hmm. um, as all, you know, all of my friends were doing, yeah. we came to London. 
I came to London. I'd spent most of the money, if not all of the money. Yeah. If not all of the money and a lot of credit card debt. Okay, wow. You know, just living the life. Where were you living? I was living, well, in London when I, well, before I came, I was obviously in North Yorkshire and yeah. then I came to London. I lived, again, I lived in Fulham. Yes. And I slept Where on. in Fulham? I live in Fulham. Oh. If we live in the same house, I don't think we will. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Hang on for a second. No. Oh, it's off the New King's Road. No, you've already lost me. You're already smarter than me. What, off the New King's Road? Well, it's smart now. I've got I was off the north. I'm off the north. Christo the Road. Christo Road. I lived on Christo Road. Okay, yeah. And I slept, like every one of my friends did, yeah. I slept on a friend's sofa for a year, trying to find my feet in a, in a relentless and unforgiving city right. in the early 1990s. And it was hard. What, did, what was the first job you had? What were you doing? No, I never had a job. Right. What, no. were, you, what were you trying to get a job at? I was trying to buy a large building... That yes. had gone into receivership. Okay, how much was how much did they want for that building? 150 million. Right. I mean, it's an ambitious thing. When I thought you might be looking for. Sorry, you say it was something. ambitious. Yeah. So it's, no, the word it's you're looking for psychopathic. Is, no, foolish. Foolish. Fine. Foolish. Okay. It sounds ambitious. Foolish. It sounds the same, but no, it was definitely foolish. Right. Did you um, get the building? No, I didn't. I came close. Though. Why did you want it? It was in receivership, and I thought it was worth 300. And they wanted 150 for it. And actually, long story short, they sold it for three. Okay. They sold it for three million That's because it had 400 mortgages on it that, that had to be repaid. And it was a very complex legal situation. Okay. I came close to getting it, but I didn't get it. How old were you then? 21, 22? Yeah, 22. To buying a, a property. I was close. 300 million. Yeah, I was close. What were you going to do with it when you had it? it was, it's a big block. It it's a very famous block of apartments in London today. What's it called? Where is it? Point West. Okay. On the Cornwall Road. Okay, yeah. So I nearly, I think I nearly, I held contracts to buy it. I nearly got it. But a miss is as good as a mile. So who knows? In reality, Fine. you know, I didn't get it, I think is the, is the story. Okay. Um, but it's, that, that again speaks to your kind of, your youthful boldness, if we're going to say boldness, or the other word. Well, I think at the time there was, um, there was a vacuum in confidence because we were going through a massive property crash. Mm -hmm. And there just wasn't appetite to do anything in right. that space. So I don't think it was about me being super clever. It was about the fact that there was an open field mm -hmm. for and not many people wanting to play in it yes. because commercial property and residential property in the early 1990s crashed okay. badly. So you went from a crash in the city yeah. to a crash in the property market. Yeah, I did. You must have thought... Maybe you're the common denominator. Well, don't talk things. to me about the internet because that's what happened and then, next then in a dot com, dot com yeah. crash. Yeah. Why, what were you invested in there? I had a... Uh, I chaired... I'm trying to work... I'm, I'm going back a few years now. Mm -hmm. Hang on, wait a minute. I was the CEO of a tech company okay. in the dot... Yeah, yeah. Dot what com what did it do? I don't remember. Nothing. I don't remember. They didn't ever seem to do anything. Well, to be fair, it's still around today. Oh, fine. But I'm, but in a cool different, Google. yeah, but in a different night. And um, yeah, it was an interesting period, but it was one where the fundamentals of business had obviously gone walkabout, you know, unlike today, yeah. where the fundamentals are brilliant. Yeah. Uh, WeWorks. <laughs> Uber. Uh, do you want me to keep going? Yeah. yeah I keep going. Okay. So like, there's 50 of them. Anyway, so for me, I came to London, I got involved in the property sector. Mm -hmm. I had some success in the property sector, there's no doubt about it. And obviously, that you know, from there, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've invested in and I've tried and failed at many different things. Do you get um, bored quickly? Is that the thing? No, but I also know when to get off the stage. So I know that my, you know, when it comes to doing sort of startups and scale ups, there's an element of blue sky thinking there, yeah. where 
you can be as creative and as aggressive as you need to be creatively and practically to get things done because mm -hmm. people know it's a startup and scale up. One out of ten startups survive and one out of ten of those scale. So that's a one in 100 success yeah. rate. So if you're not really lucky, then you, you better have a really good work ethic. Right. And I don't say really smart because being smart has nothing to do with it. There are plenty of very, very, very smart people who've had startups that haven't worked for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. So when you look at those odds, then, you know, for me, you do get a pattern of sort of behavior in business where you are fairly free to do what you need to do. And that is exactly what I did and I have done ever since. Okay. So I've been creative. But as soon as the business takes shape, I, move on. Yeah, I step back because there are, frankly, there are better people, better trained, right. with better disciplines than okay. me to take the business forward. And I don't say that to be self-effacing. You know, I ask myself always one question in the many, many startups and scale-ups that I've engaged in over the years. And the question I ask myself periodically is, would I hire myself mm. to run this company? And the minute it's a no, I sack myself okay. and bring in a professional right. who has the patience to have a much slower and, and arguably much safer yeah. uh, pace. So you're a kind of one-man accelerator, incubator? No, I definitely wouldn't say I was one man. I don't no. think I've, I've never done anything on my own. It's always no. with a team. Okay. Um, and I wouldn't say... No, I wouldn't say that. And I'm, I mean, I take... I've taken businesses and I've definitely built them and I've had, you know, my success and failures like anybody else and, you know, I don't run a fund so I don't have to think in terms of, returns you know, the absolute him, yeah. returns, you know. Um, I certainly do on the individual businesses but I don't have to have a balance sheet at the end that yeah. says that, you know, I'm good at this or I'm bad at this. It's, you know, I, I'm, I haven't always, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur but I'm, you know, I'm a financier as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've been known to invest money, obviously, but I've also been known to you know, raise money, and I'm constantly on both sides of that equation, and that really keeps your feet on the ground. Yeah. You never think you're very good when you are out there pitching, you know, your own things or your own businesses mm. to those people who are super smart, who are in the business of professional investing. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a great leveler, and it does keep you very, very, you keep your feet firmly on the ground. Does it? Okay. Firmly. Well, that's encouraging. Ground. Yeah, I suppose. And so does this city. I mean, no matter how successful you are, no matter how clever you think you are, there is someone more successful mm. and much wealthier and much cleverer than you are three feet away from you. Yeah. No matter who you are. And that, that's why London is great, because it really does yeah. just keep things in perspective. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I've always, I mean, it's a tough city, London, in that regard. It is a bit. You can never really relax never into relax. yourself and say, I've arrived. But nor would you want to, I don't think. No, there are better places to do it than London. Definitely. Probably places where you could buy a home for less than a gazillion pounds that yeah. actually has two bathrooms. Exactly. So how many businesses do you think you've been involved in from a very, very early stage? Either founded or been brought in early on? Can we put a number yeah, on Yeah, I mean, I would say it's north of 50. Okay. North of 50. And out of that, how many have been successes by no, well, any metric? again, it depends how you define it. I mean, I, I can't a, answer the question in a way that would make sense. I mean... Because it depends what you set out to do to define whether or not you yeah. got there or not. I mean, if you ask me how many went bust, I would yes. tell you that one out of that definitely went into administration mm -hmm. um, after the financial crash. Um, you know, but lots of projects, you know, just naturally don't, don't go the way you want them to go. Yeah. And that's life. It doesn't mean to say they went bust. It doesn't mean to say yeah. that they, they got into financial trouble. It just means they didn't go anywhere. And I, you know, it is the nature of this role 
to accept the fact you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. Yeah. The, the trick is to gauge your personal actions in it and determine whether or not you are part of the problem or part of the solution. Right. Um, and that I've got good at over three decades of doing this job. What gives you a sense of kind of personal value? What makes you happy when you're going to bed at night? Again, you know, it is cliched. I used to, well, if I answer the question honestly, which Please is... Please do. Yeah, which is the point, I suppose, <laughs> of this. I mean, I was so wanted to lie. Um, no, in the early days, in my 20s, it was about, you know, how much money was made. So it was a status thing? No, I wouldn't say it was status. It was practical. Because right. it, you know, the you more... wanted to buy things. Well, yeah, yeah, the more you have, the more you can buy things, right. the more you can invest in things, the, the more you can do things. Right. Definitely not. Again, what's the... I mean, you know, the status is not... In London, there's no point even... But that's it, isn't it? It's going there for me. I mean, right. it was just about how much personal freedom I have okay. to do what I want to do. Um, and definitely my 20s and probably my 30s were all about that attainment mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in financial services. I spent a lot of time in different sectors. And financial services usually are all about making money for money's sake. I'm sorry, but in my view, they are. Yeah. And I know that as a man that ran an investment bank and sat on the board of a bank and so I, I speak with some authority mm. as to really what the motivator is. But I would say that after my 30s, you know, what really made me pleased, and, and again, I've got to apologise for the cliche of it, was the amount of social impact we were engaging in. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was about involving myself in humanitarian projects where I knew if we didn't do it, the chances are nobody would do it. And that, automati- that automatically gives it additional value. Right. So where we would go into townships in Cape Town or whether we would go into Malawi and Zimbabwe and try and change the face of how water poverty and food poverty is dealt mm. with, if that was successful, I got a real buzz out of it. Yeah. Because I was deploying all the skill sets that I would deploy to make money to what I considered to be a higher ideal, which is fine provided you've got the, still got the balance of both. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, I'm not you know, playing about with my halo. I, you know, I was in the business and I'm in the business of making money, but I'm also in the business of leaving as much as I'm able to solutions to what look like insoluble problems in parts of the world that a lot of people either think issues are resolved or they've just forgotten about. Right. And, you know, to that end, you know, we have about probably about 1.3, 1.4 million people in that portfolio today, which, you know, I look at it in the context of, those are human beings, not mm. statistics, but it's still serious that's a, stuff. That's a huge amount. And of course, in most humanitarian endeavours, you are self-appointed. So you have a much greater sense of responsibility being self-appointed yeah. than you do if you're asked to do a job which has a framework around it yeah. and a set of laws and rules. So we were going into, and we do go into communities where we have absolute power and control. And no philanthropist, no humanitarian, no NGO likes to talk in those terms. But the truth is, there are plenty of NGOs out there that cause more harm than good. And in my 15 years in the field of this, you know, I do get slightly short-fused about those NGOs that are ploughing a field where they believe they're providing a solution, but they've not bothered to ask anybody who are their beneficiaries what the problem was in the first place. Right. And we've been guilty of it as well. I mean, an example of that is that we provided hundreds of thousands of free school breakfast mm-hmm. to very undernourished kids in townships, um, Gugaletu, Khalidja, Delft, Philippi, around Cape Town. And we all felt great because kids didn't get fed. They get fed at around about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but their school day finishes at 3 o'clock. 
So you're looking at cognitive difficulties, you're looking at stunted growth, mm. you're looking at all the things that happen when kids are hungry and don't concentrate. And this perpetuates for years and years and years. It's yeah. a serious problem and it's soluble. But if you provide hundreds of thousands of free school breakfast to thousands of kids, but you don't actually provide one of them with a toilet, you've got to ask yourself, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, it took us a year to work that out. Wow. Because and that's we, a whole other problem. That's sanitation. a whole... So, so that was one of the things that, you know, we've learned over 15 years. Sometimes we go into situations and we provide what we think yeah. the solutions are, but actually... They have a knock-on effect. They have a knock-on effect. Is, what do they call it? It's the... The butterfly is not the butterfly. No, it's unintended consequences. Law of consequences. That's it. Yeah. Now, we're much, much better at it now, but yeah. I do like to tell, you know, I do like to be honest and tell the stories about where we went in thinking we were doing the right thing. Mm. Luckily, quickly, we ascertained we weren't, but we learned and we changed things and we created an entire yeah. program in that instance in South Africa to fix the problems right. that we were, not just us, but just about every NGO was creating because nobody was coordinating with each right. other. They all coordinate to some degree with the government, but they don't coordinate with each other very well. So okay. we've changed that. And, and that's... Pump Aid is the big one. Well, Pump Aid yeah. and the African Children's Charity mm -hmm. are the two Africa... Definitely the two Africa-focused one. And Pump Aid, obviously, proudly Charity of the Year for Aid and Development, yeah. the UK Charity Awards in 2017. So... For me, Pompeii was remarkable because the team there did something that no one thought they could do, and that is they commercialised the provision of clean water in one of the poorest countries on the planet where we were told it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, it took seven years of my tenure to try and work it out, and Michael Shooter, um, the CEO there, and Duncan, his deputy, they worked tirelessly to come up with an entrepreneurial solution which worked. And we're building on it now. And I feel that that is an unbelievably powerful legacy. Because that case study can be replicated by... Oh, yeah, it can be... Well, it's not a case study, it's a programme. Fine. Yeah, which is important. What, um, so it's practical, it's yeah, happening it's now. Yeah, it's actually happened. What, yeah. what are the kind of... Can you talk us through the process, how it all works? Well, I won't bore you to death with it, because no. obviously it's usually people like me that find it fascinating. But look, the upshot is that if you have a donor-led model... Mm -hmm. It's simply put, and I bet many people you know, who listen to this have given money to yeah, other charities. So the way that we did it for a decade is that we would build a pump and we would make sure it worked and then we would leave. And that's all great, except the pump might break. Yeah. And your presumption would be if the pump breaks, then the people of the village fix the pump. No. What usually happened is that the village elders said, whoever built that pump, can they come and fix it? It doesn't work. And by the way, can all you girls now carry on with going to collect the water for mm. six miles the way that we've done it for hundreds of years? So I don't say that to diminish the locals. No, that was the tradition. They just said, yeah, it's yeah. not our pump, fix it. And that was partly because, and completely the failure of us as an NGO, to make it clear what the pathways would be if this happened. So what we did instead was that after we'd put down 10,000 of these pumps in 10,000 villages, we started to analyse data that said, actually, the functionality of our pumps at Pump Aid were far better than most others, right. but they were still not doing what we needed them to do in mm. terms of having longevity and sustainability. So we took our workforce that dug, dug the wells and built the pumps, and we basically identified 25 who we felt wanted to be entrepreneurial okay so they set up 25 businesses and we trained them to basically build the pumps and to sell the pumps okay. where they monetized it 
Wow. And what we did is we actually spent a lot of time educating their buyers, their potential buyers, why they should buy the pumps as opposed to just have them in their village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what used to make me scream is that you'd have a situation where someone would go, well, we provide clean water to 5,000 people. And I go, that's amazing. And they go, yeah, I go, how many pumps do you build? And they go, 10. And I'm like, dude, that's not good. I mean, think about the queue. That's not good. How is that good? You know, gravity-fed water supply in every household should be the mission statement. You've got 10 pumps providing 5,000 people, and then you, you automatically default to, it's better than nothing. Yeah. No, it isn't. And the minute you take that line, you need to, you need to jog on. Right. Because that, again, that's bad. I mean, I have other words for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's bad. Yeah. So, you know, for us, food poverty which is not enough for the Malawians to basically feed themselves healthily every day was part and parcel of it. So the program that we created allowed small holdings mm. whereby the water fed the small holdings and they could grow mini crops. Yeah. So now you're trading. And it sounds simple. It isn't simple. I've probably oversimplified it. No. But I can tell you that 25 entrepreneurs provided clean and sustainable water supplies for 40,000 people and they didn't build one pump. They build a lot of pumps yeah. and they monetize them. And they also maintain the pumps as well. Yeah, they maintain them as part and parcel of, of, of their role. So now you've got a kind of self-contained solution that's just a, it's an ecosystem in itself. And it yeah, and to be fair, to make sure credit goes to the right people for such a paradigm shift in the way these mm. things are done, we, we monetized it, we made it a business and everyone said it can't be done, it's, you know, it's charity. Yeah. And we said, no, charity, you're going to get killed. As soon as somebody stops paying, mm. it, it just grinds to a halt yeah. and there's an interesting statistic that I think is a good one that spurred us and that is after 20 years and tens of billions of pounds the food poverty and the water poverty rate mm. has gone from 54% in Malawi to 52.2% I don't think that's a good use of 20 billion dollars of aid money No. so you know for us we really were trying to tackle something where a lot of money, both the British government, the British taxpayer, and other people's money had gone into it. And we were looking for a solution because we'd been on the ground there for the best part yeah. of 15 years. And it took that long to try and work this out, even though I've probably made it sound so outrageously simple. No. My CEO will phone me up and yell at me when he hears this. No, okay. No, but it's remarkable. No matter how simple it sounds, I'm sure it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. And a lot of, I don't know, if that kind of thing doesn't exist, you've got no one else to refer to. So you really are making things up and... Is yeah. it trial and error or is it just kind of blue sky thinking? How do you even it's approach both. I mean, like to that? be fair, it's both. I mean, it's also frustration. Yeah. So there's frustration recognising the fact that we're spending a lot of money building pumps and not solving the problem. Mm. You know, we look at the Millennium Development Goals and we say that 600 million people have been provided with clean water. They were, but how many of those pumps are still working? Right. And as a result, the Millennium Development Goals saying mission accomplished, who's going back to make sure that those people are not, in fact without water, sanitation and yeah. hygiene. And yeah, we should be building schools and yes, we should be providing um, internet and yes, we should be providing all the things needed for a society to develop. Mm. But I really do think everyone's entitled to a clean glass of water and a wash. Yeah. And if that, you know, if that in some way makes me a Luddite, I'll wear it. <laughs> I don't think it does at all. So I want to talk about another one of your, um, your ventures, I suppose, is that you're now the first ever professor of entrepreneurship at King's College London. Have I got your title right now? No. I haven't. No. I forgive you, though. Does it matter? Yeah, oh, yeah, it matters. It? To, it would matter to King's, yeah. Okay, right. Um, no, I'm the first professor of practice okay. at King's. Right. Um, and I'm the first professor of practice of entrepreneurship at King's College London. Yes. So, not a professor of entrepreneurship. There are a few of those. Okay, fine. So, I'm professor of the practice. 
the difference being that you don't just talk about it in theory, you've gone out and done it. No, my appointment is based on an analytical look at a long career okay. in terms of practical business execution, yeah. I guess both good and bad. Right. And that, that's an important part of it. Okay. Yeah. Do you think the fact that you didn't go to university has something to do with the fact that you're now teaching at university? No. Okay. Um, that's I that don't. theory out the window. Yeah, no. My not bit of pop psychology gone. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, totally okay. gone. No, I mean, for me, universities have evolved a long way. Business, you know, business was a bit of a, a, bit of a swear word to many really good universities probably 15 years ago. Mm. And as the gig economy and as entrepreneurship and as people's desire to have more independence and also probably relevantly as people recognise that there is no such thing as a job for life, yeah. then universities have also recognised the fact that this is something, entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. is something they should be looking at very, very seriously um, as a way of future-proofing the students for what they want to do next. The new job market, yeah. whatever that is. Even if they're setting up their own businesses or if they're just running their own ship and just having a normal job. Well, hey, anyone with a budget in any organisation yeah. is going to be entrepreneurial. And, I, you know, I always have these battles about entrepreneur and entrepreneur. I think, you know, entrepreneurs are the ones that, that are up there and they mm-hmm. get all the fame and all the glory. And entrepreneurs who have a different type of risk and a different type of personal um, challenge mm. are in some way second class to those. And I don't like it. Right. You know, for me, you're either entrepreneurial thinking or you're not. Yeah. I think that, you know, if you take vast sums of money at the NHS or anywhere else and you risk it, you may not go bankrupt, but you will certainly blow away your career if there's a problem. Right. And everything is relative. Okay. So, for me, entrepreneurship should not be the ballywick of just people that want to create personal wealth. That would be a horrible waste. No. It is something we all have to think about as robotics and AI allegedly make things more efficient. Yeah and therefore less expensive to execute, that is going to leave us a real problem with human beings and what they're supposed to do. And this isn't dystopian and this isn't the future. This is here right now. There are 506,000 people in the UK that earn a living driving. So when cars get automated, or drivers rather get, you know, taken out by robotics and AI, I love the people that go, oh, we'll just retrain them. Really? Mm to do what? Yeah, don't get me on the statistics of of state schools and GCSEs in terms of whether or not we're even creating a workforce or even giving kids a chance to go into these type of, you know, cerebral, you know, computerised environments. Mm. It's, you know, it's not working. And then, of course, you get... um, I always mix up universal credit with universal... Basic income. Yeah. So basically in Sweden... Basic income is there, yeah. In Sweden, they ran a, a model where they gave... I think actually they did it in America. There was a state in America where they gave everyone $25,000, right? That was it. That was like, well, we've taken your job. Here's $25,000. Best of luck. For doing nothing. Yeah. Year in, year out. And the whole idea is that people would survive and that that they would be able to be more creative, spend more time with their families. It would be a way of leveling the playing field for those that don't have much and their opportunities aren't great because of either geography or intellect or some other challenge beyond their control. And, of course, what will happen is the new zero would become... $25,000 because inflation and market forces would say well you get that for free so we are just going to charge you more yeah we're just going to charge you more so I kind of if the brightest minds in Silicon Valley and they are bright come up with we've got a great way to solve the (laughs) the near Skynet problem we're going to face by giving free money away 
they all deserve a metaphoric slap. Okay. And if I wasn't on a podcast, I'm not sure I'd say the word metaphoric. <laughs> That's just me. So let's, you touched on it before and yeah. you said you didn't want to get into it. So let's go into it. These companies like Uber mm. and WeWork that, have, that raise valuations based on no solid business thinking at all. Is that a fair estimation? Well, that's your estimation, yeah. I presume. I can't comment. You can't? Or no, I'm just messing with you. Okay, you know fine. I thought maybe there's... Um, well, I thought, where are we going to go from this? Um, Do you know what's What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's... What's, dif- the, what's the fallout? Right, well, here's what's difficult. First of all, it is always difficult for someone who is a relative unknown compared to those titans mm-hmm. to tear apart their intergalactic multi-billion dollar businesses. Yeah. You know, without it looking like in some way sour grapes or in some way chippy. So I tend to take the view that as a professor of practice of entrepreneurship, I am supposed to opine on this kind of thing. So that's my get out of jail free yeah. card for, for And would you care if they it. thought you were chippy anyway? Well, I don't know. Well, no, most... Yeah, I mean, I... No, I, if it's a distraction for a message that I want to get across yeah. that I think is a truism, I would care. Yeah, of course. Um, I think that... There's an overriding message, and that is just because we can doesn't mean to say we should. And, you know, I've, I am a small business person, so I do startups and scale-ups, and I do turnarounds occasionally mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, I've been in a situation where I've gone into a company and they've had a reasonable sales through Amazon, and then after three years, Amazon have contacted the supplier of that particular company, and they've done a deal with them, and that company is no longer the yeah. exclusive supplier Amazon is. Yeah. Now, I, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, I'm sure there's a story behind it, but that's pretty ugly. Mm. I think that there's also the danger of arguing that the destruction on the high street is down to the internet. I think that's partly true, but I also think there are a lot of success stories on the high street as well. And I think the ones, the businesses that are suffering the most are those that failed to evolve the quickest. Yeah, HMV. I don't know why I think of that first. No, often. I mean, indeed. I mean, I often think of Kodak anybody. That's yeah. a hot favourite, right? Yeah. Um so, again, I think there are many reasons for failure and very few for success. I do think there are lessons to be learned in, around the valuations, for sure. And I think there's lessons to be learned around the cult. I mean, Sean Parker at Facebook went on record earlier this year or late last year mm. to say that he was so sorry that Facebook has become <laughs> what it's become. Because wow. there's no doubt about it you know, without being political, but just sticking with the natural, truthful observation of the sheer power Mm -hmm. these companies have, it is disproportionate to the amount of responsibility they face in the event that they come off the rails. Look, if a government fails, it's usually kicked out. If a president fails, they can be impeached and suffer consequences, allegedly. And, you know, so there are mechanisms. What are you going to do to Jeff Bezos? If yeah. he wipes out your entire, you know, an entire retail business employing yeah. hundreds of thousands of people in the UK because he automates it and basically destroys the model. Yeah. And don't get me on the subject of whether or not taxation in the UK is uniform. Okay. Costa Coffee paid lots of taxation when it was owned by Whitbread. Starbucks paid none because the brand was leased from a Dutch Antilles company, mm. allegedly. I don't know for sure. Okay. I don't want to get You're sued told. by Starbucks. Right, fine. I could be wrong. I think Dutch Antilles is a good place to base. Why not? Company. Why not? Never been. Yeah. Never been. Sounds nice. Yeah, a lot of uh, post boxes. There we a go. Lot of, a lot of addresses. So you're part of a, 
uh, something with the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. Part of something with yeah. that. Um, you're doing uh, a scheme where you're trying to map. I know it's a there, shame, Joe. isn't it? Because that's meant to be my job. Yeah. You're trying to map. Let me see if I can call it back. The kind of neurophysical pathways of good business. Well, I'll I'll answer the question as it was put to me. Yes, it's a thing. It's a thing. No, uh, it's not my study. <laughs> first of all, it's yeah. done by clever people. So the head of the IOPPN. You see, you could have gone there. IOPPN. For those that know, that's what you're saying. IOPPN. That's it. That would have been easier. Yeah, you're welcome. I had to look down at my we notes. We can edit that. this and you can just Fine. go with that later. IOPPN, um, yeah. From one pro to another, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, Psychology and, and Neuroscience. Yes, correct. Thank you. <laughs> right, so they approached the Entrepreneurship Institute and said, look, we're really curious to run a study to see if entrepreneurship can be taught. Now, whenever you say that to people, there is an automatic guffawing and a knowing guffaw yeah. that either it can or it can't. So the Entrepreneurship Institute at King's and the IOPPN at King's, which I think is world number one, the IOPPN, mm -hmm. they lead the study to carry out an analytical look over five years as to whether or not you can teach entrepreneurship as a subject. Yeah. Well, this, what, because if you can, it's quite handy. Again. Right. So if you yeah, can, it's a game changer. In my view, it's a game changer. But no one's proven clinically from a neuroscience, mm. a neuroscience standpoint that you can teach it. So it's a clinical look at brain patterns um, and a clinical look at processing yes. in the brain to determine whether or not you, you are learning processes and line of thought. Right, and not um, just theory. From modules. Well, not just theory, because everything's theory in, in teaching, but from... You know whether or not that can be applied in some way, yeah. but it's very much an IOPPN project. Not okay. in, it's not from us. We'll leave so, it to the IOPPN. Yeah, so I'm on it and I'm sure. collaborating, but I'm basically doing as I'm told. Right. Which way do you lean on that argument? Do you think it can be taught? Yeah, you can teach it. I think people look. If you can teach young men and women to stay cool under the hail of gunfire that they face dealing with a UXB or dealing in a very hot military situation, you can teach people mm. to de-stress and think about a monetary problem yeah. involving lateral thinking or involving a more entrepreneurial look. Right. So, yes, you can teach it. And I'll tell you why I think you can teach it. For the last four years at King's, I have. Okay, there you go. And I like to think that this, the, the, the student body there, who are part of the brilliant King's 20, because King's was Entrepreneurial University of the Year 2018. So again, it's an outside accolade yeah. looking at, at what King's is doing in this space, which is great. So I like to think that those people that are part of the King's 20, which is the best um, 20 businesses that King's students and alumni and staff create, mm -hmm. um, which get into the accelerator every year, I like to think that those people would leave saying, actually, yeah, do you know what? I learned such a lot. Yeah. And, and I think learning such a lot doesn't necessarily need to be academically based. Mm. It, it can be based on you know, other, you know, perhaps more esoteric measurements. Fine. And in that way, are you a kind of analogue, offline version of this study? And that you can probably tell someone when you first meet them, do you think, when they walk into your lecture theatre, your classroom, do you think you can tell you've got it or you don't? Well, it's like learning, I mean, I said to someone recently, it's like learning to play the piano. I mean, not everyone can be Lang Lang. No. But you can play a tune. Right. So I'm not saying that everyone we teach to be entrepreneurial is going to end up being 
I'd love to choose an entrepreneur that hasn't freaked me out recently. I mean, I used to say Elon Musk, but you can't say him credibly anymore because <laughs> he's gone completely mad. Yeah. Um, a good entrepreneur. Okay, a good know, one. A good one. Sure. And that's the other thing about it. You know, the cult of entrepreneur bugs me a little bit. There are plenty of people I know that, that don't employ a vast number of people, but they're fantastic entrepreneurs. They've built great businesses. They look after their people. They look after their families. They have a nice life. And for them, I doff my cap. Good for you. You know, 98%, I love my statistics in this, 98% of every company registered at Companies House employs less than 10 people. I mean, that's quite a statistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But SMEs are, what, 55% of our GDP? 54% of our entire workforce? And they're largely, you know, dismissed in favour of the hunt for the unicorn. Yeah, of course. You know, which for me, I'm very dismissive of. Yeah. You know, I would love it if the people at King's, if they went out and they created a business that, gave them a great life and it made money and they could engage in the social mm. impact things they care about because that's definitely where Generation Z and the millennials have gone. They want to they want to have strong social impact on the journey of wealth creation. Unlike perhaps my generation that was all about make a lot of money, then give it away. Yeah. They're not that. They're not no, we're not having that. You yeah. know, you've got to have positive do impact. You've got to do it on the journey. And if you get outfits like Blackstone, who manage $6.7 trillion, mm. saying that companies that don't have strong ESG credentials and demonstrable ones, they're going to get kicked to the wayside. If, you know, if BlackRock are saying that, then you can't really argue with the fact that no. tectonic plates of acceptability around social impact have moved. Yeah. It's happened. It's here. It's here. This isn't about the future yeah this is about every company recognizing the fact that governments right now are so wrapped up and busy with their own issues they're mm. actually failing in many many instances in many many countries to deliver the basic safeguards and needs that the populace require to live in what they deem to be a civilized society yeah and there are lots of examples I could give you of where we failed to do that, but I like to focus on where we haven't failed and where okay. we've got it right. The positive stuff. Yeah, I mean, the other point about it is everyone gets really, really excited about the top 1%. Mm. All we hear about is the top 1%, railing the on the top 1%. And yeah. you know, and for me, I'm like, I don't care about the top 1%. I don't give a toss about them. I want to talk about the bottom 1%. Let's talk about everything we need to know about the bottom 1% and what we can do to lift them up. Because by definition, if they lift up, everybody else does. As opposed to oh, it's wrong that, you know, so few people have so much wealth. I'm like, I don't care about that. Let's talk about the, the bottom 1% and what mm. we're going to do for those guys. Um, and I think that, to be fair, that's a view shared by most. Yeah. You know, millennials were the driving force around these massive social changes around business yeah. because they were empowered by smartphones and information and data, and they weren't having it. And I guess as time goes on, they get more and more senior. One hopes, it's yeah. It's just going to get better and better, we hope. Yeah. You're a nice guy, Stefan. Can I say that? Uh, that's because you don't know me and I'm on my best behaviour. Okay. Well, you, your heart is in the right place. Again, that's because you're... You Fine. Know, you don't know me. But then why do I read... You'll um, get hate mail now, by the way. Will I? Oh, yeah, God. you will. You'll get hate mail. We've never got that before. Stand That'd your be quite ground. Exciting. Stand your ground, though, if you get it. Okay. Just just tell them you'll give their home addresses to me and you probably won't get that okay, much hate mail. Good. But, but what I mean is that you have a reputation, or you had a reputation, as a fearsome financier. These are the words of the Daily Mirror, no less. And they tell me you have piranhas in your office. I did, it's true. Why did you have piranhas in your office? Well, first of all, anyone that goes out and buys piranhas for their office is a bit sad. Yes. So I did see the articles that <laughs> appeared about my piranha owning in the office. And indeed, I saw them at the time. They got more copy than I did when okay. I had them. 
back in the day, which I was jealous of my piranha. When was that? What stage was that? That was 2000. Okay. So it's a lot, 150 years ago. Thanks right. for asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, mate. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did have them. But if I could just say yes. that there was a question. The year was 2000. It was the internet boom, right? Everyone was going bonkers. And I obviously was 29, 30 in mm-hmm. those days, doing my maths. Are you really? And I was a right nutter. <laughs> right. Um, no, I was very enthusiastic, obviously, and very keen to get on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people said to me, you need to calm down. And I said, calm down's not going to get me anywhere. I don't want to calm down. And they said, what you need, what you need is a bit of feng shui. Aha. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that right. That was very in, wasn't that? That's very Tony Blair, it, Millennium Day. Right, yeah. That era. You need a bit of feng shui. And I yeah. said, yeah, whatever. And um, I didn't think anything of it. And then one day, a package arrived in my office, and it was a polystyrene box with holes in it. And it said, do not turn this over. And I'm like, all right, it was tight. It wasn't very big. It looked like a watch box, you know? So I opened it, and inside were three tiny, tiny little fish, no bigger than 20 pence, 50 pence pieces. In water, yeah. And I'm like, oh, what? I mean, whoever suggested feng shui clearly wasn't getting their checkbook out that day. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It was like, where do I put these little little things, you know? And my chief of staff, Matt Gill, came up and he said, well, I said, well, what do you want to do with them? And he said, well, you can't flush them down the loo. I said, gee, I wasn't even going there. No. I'm not a fish fish murderer. No. You know, I'm not having that. My mother actually once ran over our goldfish. She didn't, it was, it was in pain. It was, she, she thinks it was in pain. So she didn't know how, what to do with it. She wanted to, to euthanize this goldfish. So she ran it over. This is, so she put it onto the back wheel of the Volvo and backed over it. But she did it several times to make sure. So by the time, I mean, there wasn't much left. So she had to tell the kids that the, the uh, fish had swum on to greener. And rivers. how do you feel about this, Joe? I don't know. It tells no, you a I, lot my about heart, my mother. My heart hurts right now a little bit on that story. It's, and your mother, it's with all due respect, yeah. she wants a job. Tell it, call me. Okay, good. Right, I will. I won't tell her that. No, seriously. Because she'll take you up on that. Okay, and and God knows I could do with someone that ruthless. Okay, good. Um, Well, it's better than strangling it. Anyway, so you didn't want to kill these fish. If she could strangle a goldfish, I'd definitely hire her. Anyway, (laughs) so we obviously didn't want to run around killing these fish. So my office at the time was opposite Harrods. It was on Montpellier Street. And I said, well, let's go buy a fish tank. Because in those days, they sold everything in Harrods. Yeah. And we went over and we chose a fish tank. And it came back, and the fish tank people from Harrods came over, and I said, well, let's get some tropical fish. Let's go full feng shui. So we got tropical fish in there. It was very lovely, beautiful, and they left. When they left, I thought, oh, now we'll put the three little sausages, as we Uh called them, in there, Uh and we put them in. (laughs) Simple stuff, and we left, because that's what you do. You, you leave a fish to it. You don't sleep overnight. Yeah. It's not. Get on with it, guys. Do you know what? It wasn't Goldman Sachs. Okay, we didn't fine. have beds in the office. Full third. You know, it was like a normal place. Go to the pub. Yeah. No, we didn't. None of us drink. We don't right. do that. Okay. So we just left. We just left. Fine. Anyway, I came back the following morning, and there were these three tiny little heads with these massive tennis ball bellies, and no more fish in the tank. And I was oh, like, no. Oh Christ! I think I know what these are. Yeah. And of course, they were three piranha. Wow. And we kept them, and because. They were not in their natural habitat. These suckers grew. I mean, these things grew. I'm laughing now. They're as big as frisbees, these things. Oh and their God. teeth and, and their teeth. faces. Jesus. I have to be honest with you. They scared, the, they scared me. How did you feed them? I'll be, I, can't from a talk, I can't talk about that. <laughs> I can't talk about that. Because to be There's honest, feeding missing. day, a lot of secretaries quit. Right. But feeding Is that they, true? Yeah, you, they did. They right. did. In fact, it, the whole thing was quite unpleasant. But what the hell are you supposed to do? You can't, you know, what are you going to do? They're piranha, you drive a, right? You put a Volvo. I'm with you. I mean, I'm I'm happy to tell this story because compared to 
you know, yes. your mama sound like a reasonable <laughs> bloke. So, so we basically positioned the tank where when anyone came for a meeting, yeah. they were about a foot away from, the, from this wow. tank. So what would happen is the three piranhas would all swim and line up Staring at your head down. when you were sat down, licking just looking lips. at you. And there is an article on the internet uh, written by a brilliant guy called David Lawson from Property Week. And he was doing a profile on me in 1999. And he spent half the profile talking about the three frighteningly yeah. plump piranhas eyeballing him in the office. That's free copy. And I, can't, I, can't, I just can't believe the editor let him just bang on about these piranhas. Well, I think it's more telling, isn't it, than, but, than anything else? So actually, rather than an act of thuggish bravado, yeah. my... My approach to the piranha was, in fact, entirely humanitarian. Okay. Because, you know, if I'd known what they were, I probably would flush the little bastards. Yeah. Because they were scary. Yeah. They were scary. God, how long does a piranha live for? Yeah, well, until they die. Yeah, usually. <laughs> usually. Okay. Can I just say I don't have them now? No. And I haven't had them for a long time. No, good. Okay, just now so you've we're got clear. A, a python. Yeah, I don't want to get hate mail about no. it. No, no, nothing like that. No, no. God, no. no. Do you have any animals? No. Right. Well, I mean, I, I may have, but if I called them that, I'll probably end up okay. with a whole load of lawsuits. I mean, there are employment things you've got to watch out for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. OK, we'll move on from that one quickly. Yeah. Stefan, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And by this, I mean the many things you do. Did you want to be a footballer, an astronaut? No, I didn't. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be clichéd. I've managed to do exactly what I set out to do. Mm. And that is go from one fascinating project to another mm -hmm. and, you know, live many lives. There's no doubt about it. There are very, I mean, you know, policeman one minute and ad yeah. agent and stockbroker and investment banker. And I mean, there are lots of things I've done, most of which badly, but I have done them. <laughs> um, and, you know, if I had an epitaph, it would simply be what's next. So I genuinely got the job and the life that I wanted, which was to do what I wanted, when I wanted, within reason. Yeah. I didn't realise the amount of responsibility that would come with it, because when you say that, it sounds like you're a hedonist with no responsibility yeah. at all, but actually every one of those roles has enormous responsibility and a duty to lots of different people who dedicate their lives sometimes to your mission, mm -hmm. but sometimes you're all dedicated to your sort of collective mission. Yeah. So I guess I'm more chained now to my role and to the things I do than I would be if I'd just... Done know, one thing. Yeah. How interesting. Ironic, but yeah. that is what it is. What's your worst habit? Um, oh, God. I mean, you will definitely get... I mean, you get mail about that. What's my worst <laughs> habit? Depends who you ask. So, I mean, do you want to narrow it down? What would your friends say? Well, they wouldn't say anything bad about me because they're all scared of me. Right, OK, good. No, I'm just kidding. So I mean, I am the bloke that kept piranhas in my office. I mean, yeah. read the room, And you're Joe, six foot ten. And I'm fearsome. You're I'm fearsome. You're fearsome financier. Uh, what, give me the question again. I want to try and give you a straight What's your answer. worst habit? What's my worst habit? The trouble is, I'm not racking my mind to think of one. I'm trying to narrow them down. Right, OK. Trying so, to think of an acceptable Yeah, I'm trying one. to find one that I could a say and actually... one. Yeah, not end up, you know, with my daughter playing this back to me going, okay. Yeah. I'd like a word. <laughs> Although if she said, oi, I'd like a word, I'd sue a school for a start. But anyway, um, what is my worst habit? You can come back to that one. Yeah, I'll have or to just I've move got on so entirely. many. I've got so many. Fine. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, another podcast. What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Oh, I'm a good cook. Yeah. I say, I mean, I say it myself. I mean, I'm a good cook. The most impressive <laughs> thing, in my opinion, that I can cook is I do a mean 
grass and dough from Mars from scratch. Wow. I'm with you. And wow is the right response to Brilliant. that. Yeah, I can do that. Is there a secret ingredient? Nutmeg. Are, I bet it's nutmeg. It, nutmeg's it's not off se- the nutmeg. It's not secret nutmeg. The secret oh, ingredient, fine. and I'm pleased you've asked me, <laughs> is one that I cannot tell you because it is, in fact, a secret. Okay, fine. So thanks what, for asking. What are you most proud of in your career? Pump aid. Without any hesitation at all, Pump Aid, and I know it's cheesy, and I know people have rolled their eyes, but I really, really, really mean it. They, yeah. Those guys did the impossible, and I think they did it mostly because I yelled at them a lot, Yeah. Um, because they really had a fantastic sense of duty. We're not a huge charity, but we really, really cared about the outcome. We got, we got the United Nations behind it, we got DFID, the British government behind mm. it, we got USAID behind it, and for everything I've ever achieved... Pump Aid would be my number one so far. Yeah. I'm hoping the African Children's Charity will go first equal. Yeah. But we have some, you know, we're doing some work there that should be quite seismic, but we haven't achieved it just yet. Yeah. I think Pump Aid would be anyone's answer. Yeah, I, I mean, I so, hope so. And the other hand, what has been your biggest failure? Oh, too many to count. I mean... The big I, one. What's the one you, you still gives you cold sweats in the middle of the night? Oh, they all do. Um, my biggest failure. I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Because it's my biggest failure. But I will say there have been many. I mean, I take success and failure as both frauds. Because when you do this job, you take a really healthy dose of both. And if you can't see both as being part of the journey, then you really shouldn't do this job. No. Or any job. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing I'd say about that is that, you know, universities particularly, and I do fall foul of them, and in general, there is this sort of overriding feeling that you get a medal for participating. The... It's, people say it's okay to fail. We hear that a lot in Silicon Valley. We hear that a lot in America. Mm. We hear that a lot in universities. It's okay to fail. I caveat that with, it's okay to fail provided you didn't fail because you were lazy. Mm-hmm. You didn't fail because you were sloppy. You didn't fail because you didn't care. You know, if you failed because circumstances just got you, but it's clear your personal conduct was the best you could give, I'm high-fiving you and telling you it's yeah. great. But saying it's okay to fail and not actually caveating it is not the messaging I'm giving anybody. Because usually in business, if you failed, you cost you and someone else money. And that is not, that's not a light matter. No. And to divorce yourself from that in one catch-all, happy-clappy statement is extremely dangerous. Yeah, of course. So failure is fine provided the circumstances around it were about you really breaking your neck and doing your best. Yeah. Anything less than that, not so good. We've put it on 50 episodes of this, and no one in the entire history, I mean, it's a short history, has ever given us a solid example. They never said, oh, it was when I did this. They always go, oh, I don't look at it like that because I think failures are a part of the journey, which is true, but with that caveat, it puts new complexion on things. Yes, yeah, so people I... People don't want to give solid examples. I mean, I can think of so many failures because yeah. only you know what your plan was. Mm. And, of course, the other thing is I never read a business plan I wasn't impressed with and I never read a CV I didn't believe. And of course, at the end of the day, you know, we are, this is one of the things at King's, you know, people, particularly the ventures, they want to know if their business is going to work. They want to know if my opinion is that it's going to work, which is very flattering, but I make it crystal clear, I have no idea. Right. You know, and no one should tell you if your business is or isn't going to work. What we can do is tell you segment by segment, if the course of action you're taking is likely to have the outcome that you want. Yeah. We cannot tell you whether... I mean, if someone had come to me with Candy Crush and said this is going to be a 10 billion company, I probably would have sent them for a dope test. I mean, you know, there are so many outliers and so many weird things that make it that none of us in entrepreneurship and none of us in the practice of entrepreneurship should dare opine on whether or not it would or wouldn't work if you're giving advice. You don't have to back it. 
you can vote with your feet, sure. Mm. But you shouldn't say to anybody, that will not work, because you don't know. None of us know anything. So you may as well flip a coin, really. It's all about segmenting. You know, if I spend a million pounds on Facebook ads, am I going to get under a million of revenue? The mm. answer is probably not, and these are the reasons why. Yeah. Once as upon a, a time, it used to be pretty good like that. Right. So anyone with an idea, you know, has potential. If you could learn one new skill, what would you want to learn? A skill, definitely another language. Yeah. I, it's, Do you speak any? Oh, no, I don't. And it's so embarrassing. You know, I obviously have a lot of um, European and Arabic mm. friends, and they've all got, they're all multilingual. And whenever I'm abroad, doesn't matter in London. It's our hood, isn't it? In London. Yeah. But, you know, whenever I'm, you know, in different parts of the world and everyone's speaking 10 different languages or five different languages, I'm like, oh, God, shoot me. It's something about It's us. just English, isn't it? We've, yeah, but it's, you know what? It's a default language, so we feel like we don't need to. It's a mistake. It's a big mistake. It's a mistake, especially now. Mm. So for me... What language would it be then? Cantonese? No, Mandarin. for me, the language that I would choose is Arabic. That's a tough one to pick. Yeah, a monstrous, which is why yeah. I can say it, because no one will ever hold my feet okay. to the fire to <laughs> do it. It's really tough. <laughs> right. But I would choose it, Definitely. Because I work in the Middle East quite a lot, and it would yeah. be nice if I had the courtesy to talk to people in their native tongue, and yeah. of course I don't, and it just makes you feel a bit of a dummy. You're already on the back foot. Well, not so much because they don't expect you to speak it, which is why it would be great if you could. Right. Or better yet, learn it, never speak it, and then you find out what they really think about you. <laughs> okay. That's another reason That was the policeman quite me, right. but there you go. Yeah. What phrase would you like to banish from the earth? I'm on it. I'm on it. Yeah. So Why? I say that, I think, a lot. Yeah, because hey, you, I'm on it. people say it when they're not. I hate that with a passion for which I don't think they've invented a word to describe it. In my business life, whenever I've said to sometimes well-meaning people and sometimes douches, um, <laughs> you know, hey, you know, have you got this? Because if we haven't got this, we're all going to burn in hell for eternity. And they go, yeah, I'm on it. And they're not. This is bad. Do you think... This that, makes well, me displeased. If they said, I'm doing it... That's more sincere. I'm on it. It's, it's kind of nebulous enough. It means it could mean I'm thinking about it. Mm. It could mean I'm thinking about thinking about it. I mean, it, I'm on it means anything. It usually means that they haven't got around to doing anything yeah. about it and, and they bullshit completely you. forgotten about yeah, it. Yeah, that's what it usually that. means, and it yeah. makes my eyeballs bleed with rage. I think I probably say I'm on it about once a week when I'm not on it. Uh, do you know what? But I, you know, what? I'm going to I'm going to stop dirty, saying it. It's a dirty, dirty habit, and you need to I get. I feel out like of it. I can bring that up. I'm just saying. I think I say it ironically, but now maybe I don't anymore. Yeah, but those listening will not ironic. find it ironic. They'll yeah. probably require the assurance that you are, in fact, quote-unquote, yeah. on it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, well, I'm on changing saying I'm on it. I think you should. I'm on it. I'm be on a, that. Be a better man. Okay, quite right. Uh, if you could be one age, what would it be and why? Stay as one age. Probably this one. Okay. Yeah. This Fine. one. This because one, you, this non-specific one. Well, you've still got the energy to do what's necessary, but yeah. you've still got the years where people are inclined to listen to you, and if you're talking Schaffhausen. Okay, So, Fine. you know, you, you do have bandwidth for bullshit when you're this age. Bandwidth for bullshit. You know, That's whereas, a memoir title, I, if we need to. It will to. certainly be mine. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, what have you done recently for the first time? What have I done recently for the first time? Oh, sea bass fish. What do you mean, done eating it? No, sea bass fish. Sea bass Sea seashells, seashells. Sea, I don't. Where have we gone with sea this? Bash, no, sea bash. No, no. I'm not bashing sorry, anything. Sorry. That's your mother and the goldfish. <laughs> sea bass fish. That's the one. You've eaten it for the first no, time. No, no, no. I fished it. Oh, fine. Okay. So I there's you were a technique. Sea bass. There is a there's a technique. Yeah. So 
Is you, it different to a normal fish? Yeah, it's bloody hard. They're sneaky little things. Right. So they're not so little either. So really, you go out on a rib and you take a fishing rod mm-hmm. and you take a lure and you think to yourself, how hard can this be? And then you cast and you reel in and you cast and you reel in. And after nine years, <laughs> you might catch something. So I recently learnt sea bass hunting. Hunting? Yeah. So I go out in a rib. That's a rigid inflatable boat. I know. I'm just checking because you look vacant. No, I know. I mean, it's not a visual medium. So any eye, (laughs) and obviously your producer knew that you look vacant. I I was actually thinking, I was thinking about my next question. Anyway, let's not go into the, you know. Or dinner tonight, maybe. No, no. So you go out on a rib and you're in the middle of the Solent, in my case. And you're like, well, this is a big old body uh-huh. of water. What's the chances of casting here? And you look around, and where you see bodies of seagulls hanging out, okay. or where it goes super low tide and the bait fish come out, you position yourself up tide to go down tide, and you hunt for sea bass. It's a bit like stalking. Yeah, it's a lot like it is a, genuinely. It's a lot like stalking, and it is so much fun. Have you ever been stalking? No, I don't approve. But well, I have been stalking, but I didn't shoot. I wanted to just no, know when I say I don't approve, I don't want to. I don't want to fine because I do shoot, not. but yeah. I don't. No, I mean for me, I get bored, and I'm I'm seven foot tall. I couldn't. I mean, I'd have yeah, to stalk Godzilla for God's yeah, sake. I mean, see you coming. They're a mile away. Even if yeah. I was kneeling down, I'd look taller than you. Yeah, that's true. I'd probably be taller than you. <laughs> so, but I'm I, not short, by the way. Let's no, just you're not. But I am. We've we've established I'm <laughs> again you know, not a visual medium. So. Yes, but but. Sea bass fishing a lot like stalking in Yes, conclusion. it's been, and I've learnt it over the course of the last few months, and it's been very therapeutic and very tasty. Okay, good. Sea bass is a, is a good fish. It's a good fish. fish. Yeah. But I didn't consider it was hard to catch. Now I'll be. It is extra really grateful. hard to catch one you're lawfully allowed to keep. Fine. Because you need quite big ones to keep them or you're releasing. Okay. Bittersweet, you see, as you're reeling them in. Right. You don't know if it's a keeper or not. Wow. That's so real sport. You have a piece of string that's the exact length. Okay. The lawfulness to keep Can't them. Can't fudge it either. No. So you lay the fish out, and the fish sometimes is not as cooperative as one would hope. <laughs> in and being you get the string out, yeah. and you're measuring it, and of course, if it is inferior to the string, back it goes, which is sad. But, but not. Happy you kind of feel good. Yeah. You can't. So it's a lot of catch and Life release. Life goes on. Yeah. So that was really. You asked the question. I, I think know. it's a nutty question, hey. but you asked me. I mean, that's what. That's what. That's I've a good recently. answer. We've all learned something there. What can I say? What's your most treasured possession? Treasured possession. What's my most treasured possession? I always say, if it hasn't got a beating heart, I really don't care much about it. Fine. So this isn't going to go much further then. What book has influenced you the most? The Billionaire Wasn't, Yeah. Um, which is about the brilliant Chuck Feeney. I think whether you're in business or whether you are a humanitarian or whether you just like fascinating people... Chuck Feeney's story is staggering mm-hmm. and humbling. And, and Chuck I, Feeney is... Chuck Feeney was um, the co-founder, if not the founder, of Duty Free. Yeah. Um, and it's a remarkable book about a man who made many billions of billions of pounds, who gave it all away. But it wasn't just that he gave it away, it was how he did it and what he did and how he made it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's incredible. It's very, very humbling and it's so incredible if you didn't have an ego and you, you didn't have ambition, you probably never want to get out of bed again to even attempt wow. to walk in that guy's shadow. Okay. God, that's a good book. Yeah, it's something else. And finally, do you have a personal motto, Stefan? If I have one rule, yes. it would be never bother with anyone that doesn't bother with you. It's Quite good right. for business, it's good for life. Don't bother with anyone that doesn't bother with you. Okay. Well, Stefan, thank you for bothering with us. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, if you enjoyed this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you may well like the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest quarterly dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, as you may have heard earlier, podcast listeners now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at www.thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. And if you really like this episode, why not rate us five stars on the iTunes store or, of course, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. I think that would be a lovely idea. Anyway, I'll leave you alone now. Bye-bye.